That is a fabulous invitation and a wonderful opportunity to be a blessing to the church. And so we encourage you to be here or be there next, tomorrow night, Monday, and uh, eat to your heart's content. And it's especially nice when you uh, are able to receive from everybody else who's going to show up too. So invite all your neighbors. Praise the Lord. Stand with me, would you, this morning? Praise the Lord. I appreciate so much the opportunity to to share with you. I'm actually third fiddle today. Pastor Steve was was penned in, penciled in to, to fill in for Pastor, and he is still at the hospital, last report, with uh, his sweetheart and a very beautiful little boy. And so I'm third in line. This is a wonderful privilege for me, and uh, I just love to share with, with God's people. And uh, I know this morning, perhaps you looked in the mirror as you were getting things together and coming and thinking, you know, I'm a mess. That's what I said. And I trust this morning as we spend some time in God's word that we recognize that God fixes messes. Doesn't matter what the situation is in your life, doesn't matter what you're coming out of, doesn't matter how much of a failure perhaps you've felt all through the week. The Spirit of God today wants to increase you, to enlarge you, and to help you understand that you are His beloved. He loves you dearly today. Throughout the service this morning, I've just felt impressed to just take a few moments before the Word today and pray. For those of you who perhaps are sick in body, it doesn't matter if you've got a headache, doesn't matter if you've got a toe ache, doesn't matter if you've got a disease. We're a Pentecostal church, amen? Amen. And we believe that God still heals. What he said, he's still saying. What he was, he still is. His promises are true. And the word proclaims that you and I can lean upon him, cast, roll our burdens upon the Lord. The word says, as we sang about this morning, he's our healer. So whether it's emotionally or spiritual or finance, whatever the case is. But this morning, I just feel impressed that it would be an appropriate thing for us to do to pray for those of you who are sick in body today. I think one of the worst things that could, can take place is that you sit through a church service in a Pentecostal church, sick in your body, and not be able to receive. So I'm going to ask you this morning, if you've got a headache, if you're struggling with sickness and illness, disease, if you want prayer, I'm going to ask you simply, would you step to the end of the aisle on the road where you are? And we're going to pray, we're going to claim God's word, whatever it may be, and we're going to ask God to do a mighty, mighty thing. Just step to the end of the aisle, And we're going to ask the Spirit of God. I want some faith-filled believers to come up next to some of these dear folks and let's lay hands on one another and let's ask the Spirit of God to do what only He can do. That's everybody. Find someone to pray for, would you? Come pray for this dear sister here. Lay hands on her. And this is the body of Christ in action. And this is simply coming together and, and believing God's Word. Let's pray in faith this morning. Amen? Amen. Father, this morning we give you praise and glory and we honor you. And Father, we thank you today because you are our healer. You are the one who understands and knows the ins and the outs of our lives. And Father, across this room are individuals who are suffering physically. In the name of Jesus, we call their bodies to be strong. We call their bodies to be whole. And Father, we speak death to every trap, every sinister plan and ploy. Every disease, Lord God, sent to do destruction. And Father, in the name of Jesus, we speak life. We anchor ourselves in your word today. And we pray, Lord God, that you will minister your grace and your power. Father, we lean upon you, Lord. We pray, Lord, for every discomfort. We pray for every headache. We pray for every stress in our arms and in our sinews and in, in, in our joints, Lord God. We pray for arthritis this morning. We pray for diabetes. We pray for heart issues and stomach issues, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we are whole because your word declares that you sent your word and healed them and by your stripes we are healed. 
And Father, we lean upon You today. We call our bodies. We pray in the name of Jesus, wholeness upon each and every member of this body today. Minister Your grace. Minister Your power. Father, today do a wonderful thing in the lives of each and every individual here suffering in their body. And Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray, Lord, that there will be no hindrance of the word today. That we'll be able to receive and enjoy. May the rest and the peace of the Holy Spirit be upon us. May our ears be open and our eyes be, be open, Lord, to receive from you in Jesus' wonderful name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. God bless you today. Hallelujah. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're the best looking neighbor I've seen in weeks. And with that, you may be seated. Of course, we all know that's a rather facetious statement to some extent. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Well, again... I appreciate the opportunity to just be putty and to be in third fiddle, and that's pretty good. And I, I, I tell you, quite frankly, folks, I have great admiration and appreciation for your pastor. So to step in behind him is a great delight. And, and we bless them today, and we trust that they are not only receiving from the Lord and contributing, but that they are being refreshed in the Spirit. Praise the Lord. How many of you today have something valuable on you? Oh, there's a few people raise their hand. I got something valuable on you. It may be your nice shoes. It may be your jacket. maybe your tie. maybe a, a tie pin. Maybe something that you're wearing on your wrist. Value is one of those interesting things. We look at value and sometimes if we're not careful, it becomes only a money issue. But there are sentimental things, there are things that are valuable because of where they came from and what they represent. I have on my left hand a ring. I spent some quality time this morning stuffing this little ring on my fat finger. I can't feel my finger right now, but I'm still excited that I am able to some to some degree wear this little ring and I, I wear it to church and it's not because... I'm trying to flash it, and please, uh, you know, I, I have discovered I really am not running from anybody, and I don't need to necessarily display that little ring. But it's an expression, not a reminder, but an expression that I'm married. It's a rather cheap ring. I think it costs us, well, we won't talk about that, but, <laughs> but it has great value to me. In this room are... Individuals who have things with you, things that you'll be going home to, things in your life that are valuable. I want to talk to you this morning about three things that every Christian should value. Three things that every believer should have a great value, that we should place a premium upon. Something that we should run hard after to obtain and to protect, to guard and to maintain. I recognize that as believers, there's a lot of things that we should be valuing and and placing a premium upon. But there are just particularly today three things that I want to share with you. But before we get there, I want to express also that there's three ways you and I can determine something of value in our lives. First of all, we can determine it's valuable because we pursue it. You pursue the things that are valuable. It's been said before that pursuit is the proof of desire. When you really value something and you desire something, you pursue it, you go after it. Amen? If you think that relationships are important and they are valuable to you, then more than likely you have a lot of relationships. If you think that money is valuable to you, then more than likely you have a strong pool or strong pursuit of money. We all recognize that money is important. It's not everything. But there are those individuals who believe and feel that money is all in all. And they pursue it aggressively. We pursue our hells differently. As we get older, some of us are running and walking, doing the treadmill, doing all kinds of exercises. While some of us, the only exercise we get is moving our arms with a fork to shovel it in. 
What's valuable to you? You also teach what is valuable. You express that to other individuals, whether you say it or whether you sit down and say, Honey, I want you to understand the savings account matters. Amen? Amen. You teach it. And then thirdly, you guard it or you protect it. Proverbs chapter 4 verse 23 says, Above all else, guard your hearts with all diligence. For it is the wellspring of life. Guard your hearts because it's valuable. That which goes in and that which springs forth is valuable. So we protect across this world. Millions of dollars are invested on an annual basis to protect and to guard the things that are significant in our lives. It's even in the most simple things. Just recently, I was doing some work around the house, and I was concerned for my eyes, and so I went and put on big eye goggles. I've worked in shops for a long period of time. I'm a carpenter, and so I have noticed that I'm having a difficult time hearing of late and hearing things that aren't there. I'm always instructing my children and my sweetheart, honey, listen, look at me. It is absolute folly to turn away from me and speak now because I won't hear it. So look at me. I wish that I had clued in a lot sooner, but now when I'm using power tools in my garage or wherever it may be on the job, I wear these huge protecting muffs. They're valuable. I wear boots from time to time. I was dealing with some brush just recently, and I found it important and valuable to put boots on to protect my feet. In the simplest manners, we protect the things that are valuable to us. And whether it's a 401k program or whether it's tremendous amounts of money, whether it's valuable items or the sentimental, we have and take steps to protect that which is valuable. So we pursue it, we teach it, and we protect it. Again, three things this morning that I want to just share with you very briefly in relationship to what we should value as Christians. And again, there's many. But the first thing you and I, I believe, should value as believers is we need to value purity. There's a word that we don't hear much. Even in Christian circles, the word purity. A couple of points I want to make in relationship to this. First of all, God, let me remind you, is holy. When I was a kid, I heard that a lot. And I hear it around here. But I must confess to you that there are a lot of churches, we leave that word out. God is holy. Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Psalms 99, verse 9. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at the holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Make no mistake this morning, you and I are serving a holy God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And all the prayer to change his holy character, all the excuses and all the rationales pale and are inadequate in the face of this holy God. He is holy today. And secondly, he commands you and I to be holy Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45. I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of a reverence for God. 
We're to perfect, perfect our holiness. We're to live pure lives. And something that I've noticed that there is no longer a premium on purity. We hear it preached on TV, we hear it on the radio, and even from our platforms, how God is such a loving, wonderful gentleman. How He so cares for us. And some of us somehow through all of this, whether it's taught or caught, we have ascended to a mentality where no longer there is a premium on being right, pure, and holy before God. We are depending, we are living in His grace, depending upon His forgiveness, hoping above all that He will continue to be so gracious to us as we try to make excuse after excuse and refuse to admit to the fact that we have areas within our lives that need to be cleaned up. 1 Peter again, verse 1, verse 16, For it is written, Be ye holy, because I am holy. I want you to know this morning that God never asks anything from you that you can do. I use this example all the time. As an earthly father, I never ask my girls to change my oil. I'm just now getting to the point at her invitation to allow my 13-year-old to mow the grass. We have a rather, if you know anything about the Lassiters, I'm the biggest one in the bunch. The rest are somewhat shorter. Mowing a grass is not only impossible, it's laughable. I do not ask my girls to mow the grass because it is a hard task for them. I do not ask them to change the oil or to tune up my truck. I do not ask them to cut wood or do things that I know are utterly impossible for them to accomplish. I, as a loving dad, ask them to do things that I know are reasonable and can be accomplished. And when the Word of God says that you and I can be holy, I want you to know, mark it down, beloved, you and I can be holy. We can be pure. We can be clean. We can be righteous before God. It is not something we stumble into. It's something we do on purpose. But the reality is there's not a premium on being pure any longer. There's not a premium on being right, in right standing. That word righteous is a very simple, defined word. It is in right standing with God. The word righteous, in right standing with God, and then the word purity go hand in hand with the concept of holiness. I'll look the word up, the word pure. Webster's describes it as free from anything that taints, unmixed, blameless. Scripturally, it means simply clean, clear, purity. Oh, for believers, oh, for a church of believers who are desirous to be clean. But so often it is we bumble into the service, we raise our hands, we give our best shot at worship, and we leave frustrated, not recognizing and understanding that in the process of entertaining a holy God, there is a demand for holiness. What an outrageous insult! That I should come to the house of God refusing to clean those areas that are revealed by His Spirit. And anticipate His blessing. His approval. The older I get, the more mature I become the more I desire to be pleasing in the sight of God. My prayer for my own life is that I become so passionate about pleasing God 
that everything that would taint, everything that would mix into my life and foul out his glorious, wonderful spirit within me, immediately I would take it before him and repent of it. Let me say this morning that in America, there's many, too many, who have embraced an attitude that God is a God of forgiveness and love, and this is the way I am, and it's okay. The reality is, it's not okay. We deceive ourselves when we refuse to live pure lives before God. No longer of value on purity. We no longer covet or esteem, no longer desire, no longer pursue purity. It's dropped in value like real estate in America today. Something else I want to bring out this morning, that purity brings eye contact. What? Purity secures God's eye contact. First of all, Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, notice this. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Look that word up in that concept of seeing God and It's not just something that takes place in future tense. It speaks of the now. You and I will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Beloved, this morning, nothing more thoroughly blinds us to the glory and the splendor of our God than sin and habits and unbelief. Nothing shuts down our understanding and our view of his glory like sin. But there's an element more important here this morning. And we find that in Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13. Notice what is said here. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. And you cannot look on wickedness with favor. I I, I didn't make that up. The prophet said it. That your eyes are too pure. And see, this is what we don't understand. Often it is that we become so frustrated and we become so... Angry with God as though there's something personal. And in reality, the fact of the matter is God is a holy, perfect, righteous God. He cannot look on your sin. It's not a love situation, beloved. It's not that he doesn't love you and that he doesn't have a plan and a desire for your life. It has to do with the fact that my eyes are pure and I cannot, I will not. Sign off on your sin. I will not allow your hypocrisy. I will not allow your biases and your prejudice and all of those things that muddy the water and keep you from truly being clean before me. I won't let it go. And it is self-deception to suggest or to think that somehow he will simply sign off on it because he loves us so tenaciously. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sin, your impurities, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not Here. What harsh words. Hey, preacher. I know. Stone the messenger. Reject the message. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 15. Oh, there's more. Real briefly here. We'll get on to good stuff in a moment. For... This furthers our description in verse 15. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. 
Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. What's he saying? Even though you pray it over and over and over and over and over and over again, you will not get my attention. You will not change my mind. My eyes are pure and I will not behold your wickedness. I will not look upon your life. I will not sign off in your disbelief in those areas where I've spoken to you through my word and through my my wonderful voice on a daily basis to correct, and yet we refuse to do so. Psalms 26 indicates that if I cherish, if I regard, if I hold iniquity within my heart, he would have not heard me. The harsh reality is that there are many individuals who profess Christianity and are living Frustrated lives as they continue over and over and over again to come to Christ, to come to their God, to pray and see no results. We shake our heads. We are puzzled. I want to direct your attention this morning to the good news. Second Chronicles, a very familiar passage of Scripture. Second Chronicles chapter 7. I want you... I want you to hear this today. Verse 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Verse 13. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, Or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, repent, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Notice verse 15. Now my eyes will be opened. And my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. Now you will get my attention. Now my eyes will open as you repent. And you come before me and you cry out and say, God, I must be in right standing with you. I will cleanse myself. I will come before you. I will repent. And I will ask you to forgive me of my sins. God is so desirous for our success. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, then He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? Cleanse. Make me clean. Make me pure to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. That's what Christ does. He gives you and I an open invitation. Come. Let us reason together. Come and repent. Come before me and I will forgive you. But woe to that individual who wants to hoard it, refuse to admit it, who refuses to own it, and says, no, this habit is something I must embrace. This habit is something I must continue in. I'm hooked. I can't walk away. No, I won't walk walk away. And God, if you really love me, you'll take me as I am. That was the deal, after all, when we received Christ. Take me as I am. And He does this morning. But you cannot remain the same. He will fix you. It's not a matter of whether we can be holy this morning. It's not a matter of whether you can be righteous. It's not a matter of whether you can be pure or not. It's do you want to? Is there a value on it? Is it important to you? Purity secures God's attention, His favor, His blessing. There's two types of people in this room this morning. Some of you who are being absolutely ignored. How does that make you feel? Return to high school and that little cheerleader that you were wanting to get her attention, beloved. And dear brother, how did it feel when you were ignored? But Brother Roger, you're, you're being pretty bold, pretty brash this morning. Oh, yes, I am. 
Some of us are absolutely being ignored by God. His eyes are not turned towards us. His ears are not listening because we refuse to walk out of it. And then there's those who are living before God in right standing, righteous. And when they know that there's sin, they run fast to the altar. Wherever it may be, and they cry out, oh God, forgive me. I don't want to live that way. I want to please you. I want to be pure. I want to be holy. I want to be in right standing with you. And to those of you in this room this morning, God is staring at you. Those who are ignored and those who are stared upon. Those are the two types of individuals in the body of Christ. Oh, that's harsh preaching, brother. Yes, some would suggest that's negative and they can't tolerate negativity. Some of the greatest, most revolutionary concepts in God's Word appear to be very negative. But how they change our lives. You and I this morning are called to holiness. We need to value purity. That junk that we watch on TV... Those things that we so readily embrace and sign off, that's just the way our society is. That's what normal is. Folks, that's not what normal is. You and I, as we find ourselves here, will understand what normal is and what the anticipations and the expectations of heaven and God Almighty are. This is where we should live, right here. And not nodding and letting it all simply pass us by. With our own approval. We need. We need desperately. To value purity. There's something else we should value this morning. We need to value. People. Purity. And people. Oh Roger. That's a no brainer. Yes it is. And yet we have such a problem with this one. Don't we? John 3.16 says it very plainly. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, to condemn it, but that the world might be saved through him. God loves the world. All of it. All of it. Warren Wiersbe tells a wonderful story about his daughter. And one day after school, she came in about 3.30 or so, and she walks in to their, their home, and he is doing some reading there in the living room, and he knows her walk, notice her to walk in, and she takes her bag and her backpack, and she throws it down, and she begins to stomp upstairs, and under her breath, she is saying, people, 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 people. He's left scratching his head. This is not his typical response or her typical response. She's usually, you know, very cordial and says something to dad and they talk for a few moments. He waits for just a couple of minutes and he goes upstairs and he knocks on the door and she screams back at him, go away! He wasn't sure how to feel about that. And so he waits just a couple of seconds and he knocks again and he says, honey, this is dad. Go away! And he says, honey... This is your dad. What's the problem? And she says, you're people. And the reality is that there are people who bug us. The reality is that there are certain people that we don't want to be around. That we're uncomfortable in their presence. There's people who have disappointed us. There's people that we have struggled with. Our personalities are so different. We're just not alike. We can't communicate. There's a huge chasm of understanding. We've been disappointed. We've been violated. We've struggled with people. And if we're not careful, we become so selective in who we are responsive to. People. There's two individuals that we are called to love. First of all, it's the obvious. The obvious. Our brothers and sisters, John 13, verses 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. 
By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 1 John chapter 4 verse 20 speaks about how we should love God. And an individual who loves God but hates his brother is a liar. Because how can you love your brother whom you have seen and love God? Or rather, how can you love God whom you've not seen and not love your brother who you have seen? This is terrible contrast. Scripture is replete with you and I loving our brothers and showing mercy to our brothers. And you say, well, Brother Roger, that's easy. I can do that. Oh, can we? I know of nothing going on, but I venture to say in a church this size with our two services and all that takes place throughout the week, that there's some individuals who are struggling with others, their brothers. And we feel comfortable with that. We feel that's okay. We walk away and somehow rationalize our inability to embrace each other. We build these walls and we say things and we do things that bring such pain and hurt and it doesn't phase us. If you've been in church for any period of time, my beloved, you know at some point you've been flushed. God wants you and I to value people because He values people He died, sent His only begotten Son, died upon a cross, stretched forth His arms to embrace the world, all of them. But it goes beyond that. There's the obvious and then there's the obscure. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Listen to me real quick. I want to move quickly this morning, but listen. And a lawyer. Any lawyers here this morning? Uh, And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Not only my brother, but my neighbor. And he said to him, you have answered correctly to this, and you will rather do this, and you will live. Now, verse 29, but wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, "Uh, who's my neighbor? The question came out of a heart that was needing to justify itself. Oh, it's amazing how we believers, we Christians, can justify ourselves. We ask questions, we set the stage, we manipulate to somehow make it okay. And I'm here to tell you this morning that if you and I are to understand and embrace the heart of Christ, then we're going to have to walk out of all those things that keep us from not loving those around us. Verse 30 continues. Notice what Jesus says. It now begins, he begins, the story of the great, or rather the story of the good Samaritan. Jesus replied and said, a man. You know the story. A man fell among thieves. It's interesting that he says no, he gives us no description of the man. He just simply says, a man. Why? Because it's irrelevant. But notice that he begins to give a little defining edge to this story because he says there was a priest who passed him by. There was a Levite who passed him by. And only after an extended period of time, finally, there was a good Samaritan who came and gave him help. The Levite and the priest, they represent the religious. And I submit to you today that you and I need to embrace an attitude which esteems and values people, all of them, not just a few. The reason he doesn't elaborate on this man is because it is indeed irrelevant. It's a man. Your neighbor is that individual wherever you find them. It's amazing this morning that so many of us understand and know much about one another. We know each other's names. 
We look for opportunity to get together and to go out and to eat. And that is so well and so right. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time you met your neighbor? Do you know your neighbor's name? Do you even care? Oh, boy, I wish pastor was back. Do you care? Do you care? That lady in the next cubicle, oh, the, the one you caught crying the other day, no wonder she's so unproductive. She's always crying. Who's my neighbor? If we were honest with ourselves, we would come, I believe, to the conclusion that most of us, we love persons, but we don't love people. And folks, there is a difference between loving persons your family, your friends, those that you feel comfortable with, those of like color, those of like social economical background, those of like intelligence or education, those in the same financial job description. But where it really becomes significant is that when you and I desire to be used of God, We have to get beyond persons and get to people. Because we're called to people. We're called to love the world. All of them. And your biases and your prejudice doesn't hold water here today. And it doesn't hold water when you leave. We're called to love one another. Period. No fine print, no qualifying statement. We need to value one another. We need to value the world and the people because God so loved the world. And thirdly, we need to value God's presence. God's presence. Purity, people in God's presence. Chapter 14, or rather chapter 33 of Exodus, verse 14. And he said, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. This is a wonderful conversation with Moses and God. And then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people. Is it not by your going with us so that we, I, and your people may be distinguished from all of the other people who are upon the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. And then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. Show me your splendor. This is that portion of scripture after the golden calf episode where Moses cries out to God. God is desiring to destroy the people who have defiled themselves. Moses intercedes as a good pastor. And God says, I have known you. I know you by name. And my presence will go with you. But notice what Moses says. Moses says, listen, if you don't go with us, we ain't leaving. I'm convinced that no longer in the body of Christ do we truly pursue, do we truly value the presence of God, not only in the body of Christ, in our gatherings on Sunday mornings and Wednesdays, wherever, But outside, is it important that the presence of God go with you? God, I'm not leaving. God, I'm not going. God, I'm not going any further unless the presence leads me. Because there is rest with you. Moses valued God's presence. 
But notice that there are always substitutes. I believe that in America we have come to a place where no longer can we discern the difference between the real deal and the substitutes. Substitutes like talents, personalities, programs, and our mere experience. There is always a temptation for us to rest upon the laurels of yesterday, to rest upon our experience, to rest upon a program, to rest upon our talents and our gifts. And thank God there are gifted people in the ministry. Thank God we have gifted musicians and, and gifted worship leaders and a gifted pastor and gifted youth ministries. But I want you to know, at the end of the day, beloved, unless the presence of God shows up, we are absolutely wasting our time. For unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. And we have deceived ourselves into thinking that a nice slick program, everybody smiling, everybody well fed and well dressed is what it's all about. And beloved, I want you to know that it's the presence of God. You can do a whole lot of things right, but if you miss the presence of God, you've missed it all. And that's not just in the body of Christ. That's at home and at work. A lot of good things. You can pass out the track. You can witness and you can say nice things. But if it's the presence and the glory of God, that which distinguishes us and calls us, us names us, causes us to be different. And then there's many distractions. Luke chapter 10 verse 40. Remember the story with Martha and Mary? This is my favorite story in the Word of God because it is so definitive on how we look at the things of God. There's Martha and Mary. Christ comes to dine with them. And Martha is scurrying about. She's running to and fro and she's creating this huge feast. And she's the older sister. She's the one who is tremendously domesticated. She's our Martha Stewart type. And she's busy doing all the, the theatricals and, and creating this beautiful spread for the Christ. And all the time, the younger sister, Mary, is sitting at his feet, just listening to him as he, he, he speaks such wisdom and truth. And so big Martha goes to Christ and she says, hey, I'm doing all the work here. You know how we feel. I'm unappreciated. I'm doing all the work here. And, and, and I, at the end of the day, she's going to get credit too. My little sister's not doing anything. Lord, doesn't that bother you? It bothers me. And he says to her so wonderfully, so plainly, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. But only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away from her. She chose the good part, and it won't be taken away from her. Why? Because a moment spent in the presence of God is so valuable, you can't take it away. It does not fail. It does not lose its power or its glory. The presence of God. And here's the difference between Martha and Mary. Martha was wanting to create a feast, and Mary had already clued in She understood, she discovered that Jesus, He is the feast. Praise the Lord. He is the feast. He's the reason we do this. He's what it's all about. In His presence is fullness of joy. In His presence is healing. In His presence is rest. In His presence is all I need. He speaks to Martha so plainly, but she's done that which is needful and necessary. So many distractions, so many things that we can busy ourselves with. But it's the presence of Almighty God that matters. Folks, there's a lot of things of profit that you can do. And at the end of the day, most all of it could have been fixed in just a few moments in the presence of God. How do you know the difference? How do you know? 
when you've been in the presence of God. And we close with this. Brother Braden, would you come? In the 1700s, there was a wonderful move of God called the Great Awakening. And there was a gentleman by the name of Jonathan Edwards. He was a wonderful pastor. You probably, if you've done any study in relationship to church history, you've heard of Jonathan Edwards. He's been given credit for the greatest sermon ever preached, and the title of it was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Yeah, that was a popular one. And as he preached it, he read it. And his eyesight was poor, and he was becoming elderly, and he read it very monotone, very slow cadence. But the presence of God was there in such a wonderful, powerful way that there were people climbing in the windows on a warm, steamy night saying, stop, no more, no more, no more. How do I receive Christ? And there were times he would say, sit down, I'm not there yet. Presence of God. Because of his stature and his popularity, they asked Jonathan Edwards... Tell us how we know, because as any move of God, there became to be some foolishness take place. And so they asked the question, how do we know that we've come into the presence of God? Put together a little book. said five things, but the most significant thing he said was, you can tell you've been in the presence of God because you're changed. You can research it out in the Old Testament and you can look in the New Testament. Every time people came to the Christ, whether they touched the hem of His garment or they cried out, help me, they were changed. And here is my concern that as the body of Christ, not New Bethel, but the universal body of Christ, especially in America, that we come on a daily basis or a weekly basis and we come and we do all the things that are necessary in our minds to make us feel good about church. And we leave and we're not changed. Because some of you are still wrestling with the same worries of two years ago. The same fear, the same anger, the same jealousy, the same lust. Some of us haven't had joy for a long time. I'm not talking about a week. I'm talking about months. And yet the Word of God says in His presence is fullness of joy. Amen. Oh, folks, we can do a whole lot of things that are good, but the best thing is the presence of Jesus. Amen. The best thing is the presence of Almighty God. But we don't value it. We become groomed to do all that we do, our little robotic Christian stuff. And today we're wore out, we're frustrated, and we're disappointed in our faith. Today the call is to purity, to people, and to the presence of God. And I want to ask you, would you stand with me today? I want to ask you, can we worship the Lord? Can we call as the deer longs for the river brook?